Praise the Lord. Will you turn with me to Ruth chapter 1? Starting a new series today. I've been trying to read the Bible through again this year, and I read through Ruth, and I started on you know, Samuel, and I just felt called back to do Ruth, and I kept praying about it, and I just felt like this is an encouraging and challenging series for us. So before we start, let's look at the history of this book. As you know, before we read anything or do any study, we need to know why the book was written, to whom it was written, what was happening during the time that it was written. All those play a part in us understanding what that particular book or that particular passage means today and to us. And actually, the very first verse answers some of those questions for us. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. How many have read through the book of Judges? How many have been discouraged when you read through the book of Judges? You see Joshua, this great book, then you come to, to Judges and it just goes down the drain. Well, this book takes place during that time. And I thought that's pretty encouraging because in a time when the nation was just in total turmoil and chaos, you still have a pocket that you see God working in. And I thought that's kind of what it's like today. Nation in chaos, but God's working in pockets. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that this is a period in Israel's life that was very dark, very difficult. One commentary says it was a period of lawlessness and chaos. Another commentary says it's a story of Israel at its lowest point, full of cruelty, apostasy, civil war, and national disgrace. So why, what, why was that happening? Well, in the end of Judges, it says this in Judges 21, 25, in those days... Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. In other words, nobody had any regard for God's authority. And that's kind of what anarchy is, right? There's no authority. Now, during the time of judges, they functioned as military leaders in times of crisis. They also served as local rulers, administering political and legal justice. And as you find out, as you read through them, a lot of them were corrupt and were doing it right. They were, in fact, the government. Judges 4, verse 4 says, Deborah, a prophetess, now this is one of the good ones, the wife of Lepideth was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So they were also the law. And the reason I thought this would be encouraging is because we see a degree of that in society today. Lawlessness, chaos, no regard for God's authority. But in the book of Ruth, God was still working to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in spite of all the evil that was going on. How many, I asked this before, you don't watch the news, I know. How many of you occasionally watch the news? You just, you watch it because you have to, to know what's going on, but then you got turned off because it gets discouraging. I was watching last night, and actually I, I sent Brad this picture. This is in Canada now, but it's not... Not far from here, there was a church that was, they fenced it off to prohibit them from meeting in Canada. In fact, if you look, there's two rows of fences, and you can't see it, but on the right side of that, there is a multitude of police cars and people full, full gear walking around the church, prohibiting people from going to church. Canada. You would think that would be in China. I just showed you that because that may be coming here. In fact, it just, the Supreme Court just said that it's okay to have Bible studies in your home in California. 
They had to go to the Supreme Court to find that out. So what, I'm, what I mean to say is all this stuff may be going on around us, but God can still use a pocket of people to do what he wants to do. And it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. Really, if God wants to accomplish it, he's going to accomplish it. It shows that even when the government, the law, and society is in shambles, God's still able to work in each life. There can still be pockets of miracles and blessings in a world that's in chaos. In other words, God can still work in your life. God can still work in this church's life, in every church's life. Even when the world around us is not following God, God can still do great things in your life and in the church. In fact, the next part of that verse tells us what else is happening during this time. Not only a kind of anarchy, but idolatry as well. And that God was kind of, at this point, punishing Israel for that. Ruth 1.1 continues, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, throughout Israel's history, famines were generally seen as punishment. God's punishment on Israel for disobeying and going into idolatry. Leviticus 26 God's laying down the law. He says, if after all this you will not listen to me, I will punish you for your sins seven times over. I will break down your stubborn pride and make the sky above you like rain and like iron and the ground beneath you like bronze. Your strength will be spent in vain because your soil will not yield its crops, nor will the trees of the land yield their fruit. Deuteronomy 28:22. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you like iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. So Israel, during Ruth's time, was in a period where God was punishing them for idolatry, trying to get their attention to bring them back. In the last days, the Bible says there's going to be a great falling away. How many know that? I think a lot of that reason is because it's going to be difficult to be a Christian. It's not going to be whatever it is now. Freedom to do whatever you want to do as a, as a Christian. It's going to be difficult, and there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to want to do that, and they're going to fall away. And I think that's what is beginning a little bit today. How many have ever heard of cultural Christianity? It's a term that was coined by uh, Tom Rainer. Back in, if you were a Christian in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, a lot of people went to church because it was the thing to do. They weren't necessarily Christians, but it was Sunday, and we went to church, and if you were alive in the 60s and 70s, a lot of things were closed on Sundays at that point, so nothing else to do. You went to church. And a lot of times you would go to church because it was a good place to do business, you met friends, you just hung out there, but you weren't really a follower. That was cultural Christianity. That has long since ended. People don't go to church because there's nothing else to do. They don't go to church because it's a good place to do business and hand out business cards. They find other things to do, and church attendance is going down. And it's not necessarily bad, because if you weren't in it for the right reasons, it didn't really matter that you were in church. So God was trying to get the nation of Israel's attention, and I kind of think he's trying to get our attention as well. You know, it... How many remember the Challenger explosion? A lot of people came to church that Sunday. Then after a couple of weeks, that crowd faded. The first Gulf War, churches were filled. 
And then they kind of waned off. Second Gulf War, same thing. 9-11, same thing. And so what happens when God's trying to get your attention, a lot of people gets it for a while, but doesn't get it permanently. Well, God's trying to get Israel's attention. If you know their history, it doesn't last for them very long either. In fact, throughout the book of Judges, if you read it, the people cry out to God. They never ask for forgiveness. They never acknowledge their sin. They just cry out for God. And God is merciful. He comes in and helps them. But since they weren't repentant, they didn't really confess their sins. It didn't last long. But even though God's pouring this upon Israel, God is using national chaos to get their attention, but God is still working in individual lives to accomplish things. So that means whatever's going on around us, God can still do things in your life. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. God can still use you. We may think that all of God's attention is on national policy and the social scene. You watch the news and you think that God's got to be too busy with that to take care of me. But Ruth says, God cares about you as an individual. I mean, he writes an entire book about one person, basically, about how God brought this one person to where he wanted her to be. And even in the middle of what's going on around you, between the virus and the lockdowns and the politics of everything, God can still get into your situation. And as we read before, do miracles, see victories. God can still do that regardless of what's happening in the world today. He'll take care of you. God focuses one whole book on one family and how he provides for them even though the country itself is sinful. And just when you think that God's got more important things to do than helping you, the book of Ruth is to tell you that God cares about you as an individual. The marquee we had a couple weeks ago, you know, we say, that, I've said this many times, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, replace the world with the word you, for God so loved you. And I think, Diane, you said it to Hudson this morning, for God so loved you. If only one person needed to be saved, God came for you. And so if that's true, then no matter what's happening all around us, God still cares about what's happening in your life. He's not too busy worrying about everything else. One thing we know that is true, that sometimes good people suffer because of other people's sins. Amen? Somebody drives drunk and hits your car, you suffer because of their sin. And that's exactly what was happening with Ruth's family. Now, we haven't been introduced to Ruth yet. We're going to see her later. But Elimelech and Naomi and their kids were caught up in that famine in Israel at that time. And the problem in this particular instance is rather than trusting God through the famine, is this Elimelech and Naomi and the kids, rather than trusting God, what's he do? He runs. And it's exactly what Abraham did twice. And neither time did it work out, right? And you would think that by this time, Elimelech would know that story and trust God through it, but he didn't. And I wrote down here, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be, it's always better to be in a place where God has called you than where God hasn't called you. Sometimes our difficult situation, God calls us to stay there because it's going to get better if you trust him to get better. Every once in a while, when we move to Florida, 
You ever doubt when God says something to you? I don't know about you, but I, I would love it if he still wrote on the wall. I want to see a finger right on the wall. I want to hear an audible voice. I want to hear thunder. It doesn't work that way, at least not for me. And so when God calls us to Florida, we get to Florida, and I'm like, man, did I blow it? Did I, did I, did I, should, I should I have stayed? Should I, you know, maybe I should have stayed. I, I was, and you doubt it. But no matter what's happening, sometimes it's better to stay where you are and trust God through it rather than running to something else that you have no idea about. In fact, we're going to see where Elimelech led. He went away from God. He left the situation. Not that he wanted to be better. He left where God was. God gave Israel this land. They were to occupy it, right? They were, this was their land. God says, go in the land and occupy it. He never says, except when this happens, or leave if, it's, if it gets tough. He told them to stay where they are. Continue on the roof. There's a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So not only did they not trust God where they are to meet their needs, where do they go? They go to the enemy. Moab was their enemy. Moabs or Moabites were descended from, from Lot, and they were the enemy of the Jews in Deuteronomy 23. Verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor in Aram Neharim to pronounce a curse on you. Judges 3, 12. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. So these guys didn't like the Jews. They were their enemies. Why would you leave what God called you to to go to someone that hated you? That was your enemy. And I, I thought, it's kind of like defecting from your country. Imagine going to, if you live in the United States, imagine going to Russia or China to defect because you think you have more freedom there than you have here. Kind of ironic, right? Two countries that have no freedom and hate us and you go there for help. And that's exactly what he was doing. There was a famine in Israel and rather than trusting God, he goes to the enemy for help. I wrote down, ask yourself, do you think that God is sovereign? Is God sovereign? God can do what he wants? That God can rule and overrule people and situations. You remember when uh, Israelites went to Egypt and they, they sent the plagues and God protected where the Israelites were. Everybody else got all the plagues except this one little thing, one little plot of land. If God can do that, don't you think God could have provided for Elimelech and his family had they trusted him? God could have provided food for them in a drought. Do you think God could have met their need if they stayed where God called them to be? I guess 
do we trust God to meet our needs without having to go to the world system to get help, which is kind of what the world wants us to do. So we come to the next two verses in verse 3 and 4. It says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. They left a famine, hoping to get a better life, and this is what they got. He dies. How often does the world entice you into wanting a better life? But if you give up what you believe, if you give up your convictions and you believe, give up your lifestyle, I can give you a better life over here. If you do what the world's telling you to do, it will be better for you. And it almost never works out that way. Whatever the world promises you, you never get. It will cost you more and be more painful. Notice what's happening. Elimelech and his wife, who we may assume were semi-good Jews when they left, they, you know, his name actually meant God is my king. But as soon as the difficult situation happens, the famine, he starts down this slippery slope. He first leaves for something that sounds good. Hey, there's no famine over there, and there's famine here. Maybe I should go where the good stuff is. Sounds logical. But they didn't ask God about it. They didn't trust God through the situation. And even though they were the enemy, and God said, don't have anything to do with them, they still went there. The world is going to offer you a lot of things that look better than what you have right now. How many of you watch TV commercials? It's, there's, you can have anything you want. I get letters in, every day in the mail for another credit card, another credit card, another credit card. You've been pre-approved. When I was in college, you couldn't buy a credit card. I went and I got a Sears card. I thought I was big stuff. Everybody else turned me down. But Sears said, okay, I'll give them a credit card. But now you, they'll, they'll send you a multitude of cards in the mail. You can use that. You can jack up your credit. You can buy everything you want. You can have the nicest stuff. I see, you know, car ads, no credit, no problem. Bad credit, no problem. We'll get you into a car. We don't care if you can afford it or not, but we're just going to let you have it. And it looks good until you drive it off the lot and you realize you've lost $10,000 in value. And now you're hooked into paying it for seven or eight years. There's things that God tells us not to do, specifically. And they may look good on the outside. But when God says don't do it, there's a reason for not doing it. Because ultimately it's going to be hurtful to each one of us. The things that the world offers always probably, or probably will involve you in giving up your convictions and not obeying what you know God's word already says. And I've heard this, people have told this to me, Christians have told this to me, God will just have to understand. Yeah, really? Elimelech basically told God, hey, God, there's a famine here, you've got to understand why I'm going to the enemy. You, gotta, you just have to understand that. But when you do that, it always involves a little sacrifice on your part giving up a little bit of what you believe. The next step down the slope is that he allows his two sons to marry Moabite women. We all know that wasn't allowed. 
Elimelech knew that wasn't allowed. Deuteronomy 7.3 Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their, their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Ezra 9.1 After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from their neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Parasites, Debusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and, have, and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. So not only does he, God, you'll have to understand, the next step he allows his children to sin. It's okay, go ahead and marry the women. Then the first thing that happens is the dad dies. Elimelech dies. And then, right after him, the Bible says, his two boys die. Verses 4 and 5. After they lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her sons and her husband. Now, when you read that verse, does anything jump out at you? Verse 2, just two verses ago, it says they went to Moab for a while. Doesn't say how long a while is, but now it's 10 years. So it's probably longer than they anticipated it being. When we say that God has to understand, you know, it's only going to be a short time, it winds up being a lot longer than you think. Why? Because you get comfortable where you are. God just has to understand, I'm going to go over here for a little bit, but I'll be back. I promise I'll be back. And then Time goes by and you get comfortable here and you know what? I'm not going to go back right away. So it goes from being a while to being 10 years. Think of what's happening now. COVID. Just shut down for two weeks and you'll be fine. Well, it's over a year now. Churches still aren't open. Some folks have not returned to churches that are opened. And I get it, you know, there are some that are worried. I get it, you know, understand that. But I bet a lot of people have gotten comfortable not going. I can just, you know, I can just watch it online. I can roll out of bed at 1029 and just flip that computer on and I'm good to go. It's just comfortable. Just, just going to be gone from a church for a while and I, you know, I don't want to get sick. But now you're comfortable. They were there for a while and it wound up being 10 years and they got comfortable. And how ironic is this? They left famine because famine meant death. And they died. You can't run away from your problems. How many know that? Most of our problems are hot heart issue problems. And they follow us. I forget who said it, the famous preacher said that the, the hardest person he has to deal with is himself. <laughs> I gotta worry about me more than anything else because my heart issues are the, what, what create all of my problems. And the next main problem wasn't the famine. It was his heart not trusting God and thinking he didn't need God to help him. God, I don't need you here. I'm going to go over to Moab. They got the food. You're, you're good. You stay in Israel and punish them. I'm going over to Moab. 
Now, I thought about that. Every divorce follows this pattern. Because one of you says, there's a famine in my life, in my marriage. I need to go to that land, that person, where there's no famine. It's greener over there. But what happens? Your heart problems follow you. And in most cases, not all I know because there's some serious situations, your heart problems create the same problem in the second marriage. You don't solve your heart problems, you took it with you. Moab took his stuff with him. His faith wasn't in Israel, it didn't grow while he was in Moab. Ruth 1.6 says, when, they, when she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. If she'd have just hung out in Israel, she'd just stayed there. God was blessing it. But she left where God was going to bless, and she's missing out. People make snap decisions every day. Whether it's, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to get married real quick. I'm going to get divorced real quick. I'm going to buy this expensive car really quick. Or any kind of radical change that they make, and they make it instantly without thinking and praying about it. Maybe trusting God to solve it. If you trusted God to be in your snap decisions, you don't make the snap decisions, maybe your problems will go away. Maybe God will bless you and take this out of your system. There's this ridiculous TV show called 90 Day Fiance. Oh, you all know that. It, the, the premise of the show is you have to marry someone you've never met in 90 days. And how many are shocked when those things don't work out? But how many of us make snap decisions? Not maybe as serious, but maybe a series, as those without waiting on God for the answer. Or maybe like Naomi, you miss God's blessings because you're not in a place to receive them. One commentary says this, I love this saying. Instead of praying, Lord, bless me, how about we pray, Lord, make me blessable. Make me in a position where I'm able to receive your blessing whether it's in a physical location or maybe my spiritual life, Lord, make my life something that you want to bless. Not just bless me, but make my life in a position where I'm able to receive the blessing. If you're sinful and you're not living right with God and you ask God to bless you, guess what's gonna happen? He ain't gonna bless you. But Lord, make me in a position where my life is right before you and I am blessable. Lord, let me be in a position so you can bless me. So what happens? They start, they hear the good news about their famine being over, and they go back to Israel. Verse 7, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. But here's something that's weird that happens. Verse 8, then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's house, May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. 
May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now, how many of you, when you read that, think that's, oh, that's so compassionate. That is, that's really a, a mother-in-law's heart. Really? Think about this for a minute. If she now was going back to Israel, and if she was coming back to where she knew God was, and if she was a true Israelite, she believed that he was the one and only God, no other gods, and she's going back there, why would she not want to take her two daughters-in-law with her? Instead of leaving them in a country that was idolatrous, that God hated, it was the enemy of God, that was going to be judged by God, why would she leave them there and not take them back with her? There was a lot of speculation on why. Different commentaries say different things. But the Bible never says why, so we're not going to, we can't really speculate. But I'm going to draw an analogy there. If we as Christians, and we really experience God in our lives, and believe that God blesses us and takes care of us, then why are we reluctant to ask people to come to church? Why are we reluctant to talk to them about that? She was reluctant to take them with her. She says, go back. In other words, her faith didn't matter that much. She was willing to let her two daughters-in-law go back to a country that would surely be judged by God in some time in the future. And she would wind up apart from God in eternity, but she let them go back. She may have thought she was being compassionate, but ultimately, she's not. I was telling the teens today, we are talking about their lives mattering. You know, the Bible says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. They're teenagers. God can use them in a mighty way. I said, then they're going to they're gonna be around more people that aren't Christians than I am. I'm around Christians all the time. They're not. They have the ability to affect someone's life in a positive way that I'll never have. But I also said to them, they need to be ready to talk to someone, have the courage to talk to someone about that. Because if, and the analogy I used was if, and this is not original to me, I've heard this before, if your neighbor's house is on fire, do you sit at home going, you know, I don't want to embarrass them, I don't want to really think, make them think badly of me, so I, I'm not going to do anything about that. Or if the house is on fire, do you go over and kick the door down and tell them the house is on fire? Get out. Now, obviously, we know what the answer to that is. And that's just temporary. For eternity, their house is going to be on fire. Do we sit back and say, you know, I don't want to embarrass them. I can, they're okay. Or do we want to tell them with all urgency that there is a fire that you're facing in your future? Naomi was like, oh, I don't really care about that. I'm more worried about me. One of the analogies that, or one of the reasons that people give is because she was afraid to take them back because they were Moabites. And since they weren't allowed to marry, that would look unfavorably upon her. Oh, you let your kids marry Moabites. What kind of person are you? That was one of the theories that goes around. So maybe she was nervous about bringing people back. Are we nervous about asking people to church? I used to, when we were in the, the bigger church, I would, I was, when I would ask people to come, I would say, Lord, please let it be a normal service today. <laughs> <laughs> P- 
please don't let anything weird happen in the service today. But you know what? The stuff that we, you know, the weird stuff, the Bible says that happens to get people's attention. When you have the Holy Spirit speaking in a service, it's supposed to get the unbeliever's attention. And, you know, we, we did a series on the gifts a long time ago, but prophecy and tongues and interpretation are supposed to speak to people who are here in their life situations that only they know about. How can that person know about that? It must be God, and it's supposed to draw them to the cross. So don't be afraid of what God is going to do in a service because God knows what he needs to do in a service to get people's attention. And if it's, you know, I've yet to be in an AG church where someone's swinging from the chandelier. No one actually has ever rolled down an aisle. So when you ask people to church, trust that whatever God does in that service, it's for them. Ruth 1.9 says, Then she kissed them and they wept a lot and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? I'm going to have any more husbands. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? You remember the law? A husband dies, you marry the brother. Well, <clears throat> Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's, it's, bitter for, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And at this she wept again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So what is she doing? Instead of sticking up for God and giving a good testimony about God, she's beginning to misrepresent him to people. She's saying that God is to blame for all my suffering is what she's saying. It's my fault that God's punishing me, so you don't want to be around me when God punishes me again. How's that for a testimony? You know, God has beaten me up this week, and it's just bad, and if you're not careful, you might, you might get just beat up with me. Hey, come to church with me. Uh, no thanks. If she was walking in faith, she could have brought back both women, and two women could be in the kingdom of God instead of just one. That's why it's important to have faith when going gets difficult. Because not only does God help you through it, you now become a light and a safety line to others who may be going through it too. Nobody's going to want what we have if we constantly complain and blame God for everything that goes wrong in our life. And how many of you have, anybody have a perfect life? I'm going to talk to you about that. It's not any easier being a Christian than it is being an unbeliever, right? Same Bible says it rains in the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to good people. Good Christians die early. Bad things happen. The difference is God gets you through it, right? Right? But people are going to want what you have if in those difficult times you can still praise God. One of, the, one of the main reasons we have worship on Sunday morning is just, well, we worship the Lord. We want to, you know, enter his courts with 
thanksgiving and response with praise. We do that. We praise God for how good he is. But during the time that we worship, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to drain out of you all of the week. All the stuff you, minister, you know, got thrown at you through the week, God washes that out of you, fills you up with the Spirit. You know what? You no longer feel anxiety or nervousness or fear or whatever it might be. God replaces that with his trust. That's why there's a dynamic to being together as opposed to watching it online. God is able to, now can God do that in your home life? Absolutely. But there's a dynamic that God wants us to have by being together. And if we come in grumbling and complaining, that's okay. That's the week. But during the church service, during the worship time, God takes that away and replaces it with peace and joy and, and comfort. Problems don't change. Your attitude about them changes. Verse 15 says, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go, she stopped urging her. People are naturally curious about spiritual things. You turn on any TV show, not necessarily good spiritual things, but generic spiritual things. When we were in Florida, there's one of these things in Florida, I don't know if it's here or not, but there are, there's a group in Florida called the Witches of Delray. There are tarot card readings, there are seances, there are all kinds of that, that gobbledygook down there. And it might be here, I just don't know. People want to know about spiritual things. How many of you, when you were a young kid, tried to have a seance? Now, if you were a Christian, you didn't have that. Because God says, <laughs> no. But people are curious about that. If God was working in Israel, God was doing something over there, Ruth wants to be a part of that. I don't know what it is. I don't understand what God's doing, but if it's working over there, I want to go see it. I want to see what God's doing. If we are able to have testimonies of how God's working in our life or in our church or wherever it might be, people may not understand it, but they're going to want to be there for it. One of the things I pray about this is let word get out that God is here, that the presence of God is here. Draw people in because they hear about, oh, God, something's happening at Dover Assembly. I don't know what it is, but I want to go find out. If you went to the Bronzeville Revival years ago, that's kind of what happened there. Word got out. Hey, God's doing something. And if you remember, there were lines of people waiting to get in the church to see what God was doing. That's revival. And we want the same thing here. We want people to know that the power of God is here. The presence of God is here. And you want to experience something spiritual? This is where to be. And it may not be like Brownsville. It probably won't be like Brownsville. But it will be a thing that touches people's lives and changes them. And then when they walk out, they get, I get it. God was there. I don't know what's happening, but I felt the presence of God and God was working in my life. Whenever we present the gospel to folks, people have a choice to make when you present the gospel, whether in church or you're talking to someone, the first choice is this. 
You know, that person may love you and they may want to let God change them, but in the end, they go back to what's comfortable. That was Orpah. She, you know, she kind of wanted God, but you know what? I, I'm really comfortable where I am. I'm, I'm good where I am. And we all know folks like that. Whenever life gets hard, they come back to church. They come to the altar and they cry and they pray and we pray for them. And they promise God, I'm going to change. And then they leave. The problem goes away. And they kind of go back into the comfortable zone. There's a New Testament example of that. Mark 12, 28. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, the teacher. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And here's the key. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not far, but you're not there yet. You're not there. He had the knowledge, but the knowledge didn't change him. He stayed where he was comfortable. Yep, I know that. I know all of that, Lord. I know what the word says. I know it. I'm not going to change. I like where I am. I don't want to let God can take control, but I, I agree your answers are all right. Jesus says, you're, you're not, you're close, but you're not there yet. That was the first choice. People that have heard it, and they want to change, but they don't, they stay where they are. And the second choice is this. Knowing that following God may not be the easiest, and leaving all that I know and familiar with may be difficult, but in the end, I know it's the right choice. That was Ruth. She left her family, her life, and all she knew and was comfortable with to go be where God was. You know, raising your hand at the end of a service is not the easiest thing to do because you're now beginning to change everything about yourself. And imagine this. Imagine if someone came to you now and told you that everything you ever learned in all of your life was wrong. What would your reaction be? Right? When you present the gospel, you're basically telling them that everything or most of the stuff they've learned is not right. Here's the truth over here. And to take that, what's the Bible say? The evidence of things not yet seen? Faith? You have to make that choice by faith. You don't know what it means, but it does, you know it does mean that you're going to have to change some things. That your life is going to change. When I first got saved, I, I knew it was going to be difficult to, <laughs> they use the term coming out now, right? <clears throat> in, a, in a negative way. But I knew that when I had to come out as a Christian, it was going to be difficult. <laughs> Probably more than if I had come out the other way. <laughs> but I knew that it was going to be different. And I knew it was going to, you know, maybe cause friction, maybe not. I knew that some of my friends wouldn't be around anymore. 
I knew that was, you know, I knew all that was going to happen. But I knew how to make the choice. We may not be comfortable. We don't have to leave everything we know. But you're going to be required to leave some things behind that are comfortable for you now. And you leave them behind in order to receive even more blessings that God has in store. I remember a picture I saw on the, on the internet or something, and it was a picture of Jesus holding his huge stuffed animal behind his back, talking to a little girl that had a little stuffed animal in her hand. And he was saying to her, I'll trade you. And she was kind of reluctant to do that, you know, and she didn't see the big one. But the point was, if you give up that little one, whew, I have this huge one for you. And the things that God asks you to give up He's only going to replace with something that is much better. And you're not going to miss what you had to give up. In fact, you're probably going to like that you gave up some of the stuff that God's asking you to give up. Now, as we, we're going to finish here, but as we go through this book of Ruth, we're going to see how Ruth's life is blessed because she, what, she stepped out in faith to trust God, having no idea what was going to happen. I mean, she was going there as a foreigner with her mother-in-law, and if you knew widows, Orphans, they were on the lowest rung of the totem pole. They couldn't work. They couldn't provide for themselves. They had to scrounge to get whatever it is they had. There's no help. There's no men to help them. And so she was leaving something that could have been a blessing back then, but she went to trust God to provide for her there. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you close your eyes for a moment? Ruth was leaving behind what was comfortable for her in order to step out in faith and trust that whatever God had for her in Israel was better than what she was leaving behind. And that's for Christians as well as non-Christians. As you mature in the Lord, there's always things that God begins to take out of your life to replace them with better things. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. When I became an adult, I put away childish things. And that process never ends. The things you do in your 20s, you probably don't do in your 30s. And you definitely don't do when you're 40. Why? Because you mature. And God changes your desires and changes what you, what you value. So as Christians, we need to be open to what God wants to change in us. And maybe it's things we're comfortable with. Maybe it's things we enjoy. Not necessarily sinful things, but things that God says, are you willing to give that up? Because if you give that up, I've got something better for you. If you're here this morning, you've never really committed your life to Christ. You've never made that step. The Bible says we're sinners. We are all sinners. And because we're sinners, none of us is going to get to heaven. And all of us deserve judgment but the Bible says the good news is that God sent Jesus to take your place his suffering should have been yours and should have been mine but since he took it the price has been paid and now our sins can be forgiven and all that Jesus says is you got to believe it not just in your head but in your heart if you've never committed your life to Christ and you want to ask for that forgiveness this morning I want you to raise your hand. I want you to pray 
with me this morning. Maybe you're here as a believer this morning and you're just you're wanting to grow and mature and become more, more Christ-like and you're struggling with things that you're comfortable with that you know God's kind of dealing with you on. Saying so you need to, need to dump that to ne- go to the next level. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because everyone's different. Everyone's growth process is different. But if that's you, ask God to help you get rid of whatever it is you you know it's got to go. And it may not, like I said, may not be sinful. It just may be something that's preoccupying your mind or taking more of your time than you know it needs to take. Father, thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a loving Father. And your entire goal in life is to make us become better believers, more like Jesus. And that process is a never-ending process. Never ends until we go to see you. So as we mature and we grow and you take some things away from us and you replace them with other things, help us to be ready for that. Help us not to be too comfortable where we are, but help us to step out in faith and trust you. Because when we get comfortable, Lord, we kind of want to stay there. And I pray that you would re-energize each one of us here, those who may be watching at home, re-energize them, re-energize us, revive us, and get us on fire for the things of God. Lord, we know that these really are the last days, and you can return at any moment. So Father, we want to be sure that everything we do is to honor you and to draw people in Allow us to hear those words when we get to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. And we want to be sure that we bring as many people with us as we can. And Lord, we know the only way that happens is if you continue to fill us with your spirit, continue to energize us, excite us, and send us out to accomplish your mission. We pray for those in our community, Lord, as we're reaching out to them. I pray that you would put it in their heart to want to be where God is that they want to experience the things of God. They want to hear testimonies of how God's working. They want, they want spiritual things in their life. So we want to introduce them to the truth. We pray your continued blessings upon us and upon each person, Lord. Each person matters to you. Each person's life here matters to you. So Lord, I pray that you would get into each and every life and do what you need to do in my life and every life to bring us to the next level to be encouraged, and to be used by you. And Lord, we commit ourselves to that task, and I pray your blessings upon us as we leave today. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night. Oh, I kept you late.